I want you to turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, as we continue in our series on this magnificent gospel. As you're doing that, just want to welcome publicly Joe and Emily and children, Shelly, and so good to see you guys here again. And um, just have you worship with us. Great to see the Lord just blessing you and see you doing well. But it's, it's awesome to have you guys here again. Luke chapter 10. We were, uh, I was originally going to preach for the, uh, through the first 24 verses, but I only made it through four of them. So we're going to look at uh, verses 1 through 4 uh, this morning and trust the Lord has a rich, um, rich truth to tell us this morning, a rich feast for us. Isn't it wonderful that God speaks to us uh, through His Word and by His Spirit? It's an amazing thing. Let's, um, let's then hear His Word expectantly. Uh, we're going to read the first 12 verses. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house, and if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whatever, whenever you enter a town and, and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Oh God in heaven, thank you that you do speak. Thank you that you delight to speak. And that, uh, Lord, we are transformed as you renew our minds. And I pray, Lord, that we would experience your power today uh, in, the, in a way that we are being transformed by your truth and your grace. And we pray in all of it that Jesus Christ would be magnified and that we would love him. In his name we pray. Amen. This morning, we're gonna, Jesus would like to talk to you about something that um, causes anxiety for many Christians, the, the word evangelism. Uh, when we hear the word, I think some part inside of us maybe cringes a little bit. It's, it's a sore spot for many of us, sort of like talking about dieting and losing weight. Uh, something we know that we should get around to, but we, well, there are reasons. Uh, we just never seem to quite get at it. Uh, every Christian, every child of God, if you have the Holy Spirit within you, you have an intuitive sense that you ought to be doing something about this topic of evangelism. Uh, the Holy Spirit within you is communicating to you that you are part of a mission force. Uh, you're part of a mission endeavor. But you're not maybe quite sure what to do about that. Maybe you've tried to talk to someone and it went very poorly. Uh, there's, there's nervousness about striking up conversations about Jesus, not just because they might think you're odd, but maybe you won't, you won't know the answers to the questions, and you just don't feel well-trained in apologetics and um, New Testament theology, maybe, or, or eschatology, all these big words, and you don't know about that stuff. And so 
we just don't go there. And besides, we're busy, aren't we? We've got, so, we've got a lot of things on our plate already. We've got families that we need to be taking care of and jobs we need to be attending to. And so we live our Christian lives and we do them. Uh, we, we, we're trying to grow. But there's this ongoing nagging sense that here's an area where we're not really doing that well. I would just like to confess that if I didn't describe you in that scenario, I, I am describing myself. Uh, there are certain things people say they would like to do before they die. Uh, maybe take up some hobby like quilting or uh, woodworking, hang gliding, I don't know, whatever uh, your sort of desires. Or maybe it's you want to take some long trip and go see the world. I'd like to learn how to be a better evangelist. I'd like to learn how to um, just talk to people about Jesus with the freeness uh, that, uh, that Jesus deserves. And... Uh, I hope you, you have that same desire. I hope you'd like to learn how to be a better evangelist in, in whatever way God has called you to that. The reason you see this matters is God is a missionary God, and Jesus is an evangelist, and the church is then at its core Jesus' primary method of reaching the world and gathering his elect. He is not bound by the church. He can save sinners in any way he chooses, but it is undoubtedly the case that the primary means that Jesus uses to reach the world is his people, the church. We are, by definition, a missionary institution. We exist to proselytize. Our worship even is to have that effect, that as we gather and we worship Jesus, that there is a testimony being raised of what we believe is most valuable in the world, what we believe deserves our time and our attention and our money, what we believe has authority in our lives to speak to us and to direct us. Our worship even has this mission, uh, emphasis, and aim. And the, the good news is, you see, we can do this. Uh, Jesus has given us everything that we need. He's given us the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit has poured out gifts among his people so that we can joyfully reap in the harvest fields of our Lord. If you've ever worked uh, on, a, on an engine, uh, maybe a small engine or a, a car engine, whatever it might be, uh, one of the things that keeps you at it when the, when, when the engine isn't running right, the thing that keeps you going is this thing was made to run. It's supposed to run. All the parts are here. Well, the church was made to evangelize. All the parts are here. So let's let the Lord speak to us and encourage us and move us and transform us by His Word. This morning we're going to just start by looking at the mission work. The mission work. And we're going to look first at the missionaries and the mission. The missionaries, we see right away, Jesus appointed 72 others and sent them out ahead of Him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. If you remember back in chapter 9, uh, Jesus sent the 12 out, and they were sent on an almost identical mission trip, sent to do the very same things. Uh, this mission trip is so uh, very similar in its mission, but it's larger in its makeup. Jesus appointed 72 others. There's a, a wonderful discussion that takes place among scholars here. Uh, some of the earliest manuscripts have the, the number 70. Others have the number 72. But whatever that number might be, there seems to be some significance. If you, if you remember your Old Testament history, uh, if you remember how, how many people were in Jacob's family when he went into Egypt, it was 70. 
Uh, how many people uh, did God command Moses to raise up to assist him in the work? It was 70. So, the, so there seems to be some, some significance uh, to that, that number, but I think the most significant point that we want to see is that Jesus is choosing ordinary people to do this task. We don't, we're not told that these were, these were leaders in, in any particular sense. These are 72 others. They're not the 12. They're just followers of Christ in some way that Jesus identifies and sends. The lesson being, of course, that the task of gospel promotion and gospel proclamation begins to the church community at large as a whole. It's a task for all of us together. Um, there's clear evidence that the early church understood that. If you remember in Acts chapter 8, persecution breaks out. The apostles, the leaders remained in Jerusalem, but the church scattered, and we're told that those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And that doesn't mean that every individual was standing on a street corner and preaching, but, but the church, each uh, participating according to their various gifts, the church went as a witnessing community. They were scattered as a community that was talking about Jesus, and the Lord was blessing that witness in beautiful ways. The mission we find in verse 9, heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. just want to point out again this, this idea of a two-pronged ministry, a two-pronged approach of word and deed. We saw that in chapter 9. We see it again here in chapter 10. John Dixon, uh, in his uh, excellent book on evangelism called The Best Kept Secret of Christian Mission, just uh, identifies these two parts as gospel promotion and gospel proclamation. Gospel promotion and gospel proclamation. And both parts are necessary. Uh, if we just first look at gospel proclamation, what's the message that they're to convey? Well, say to them, Jesus says, the kingdom of God has come near to you. In other words, these folks are to go out and proclaim the king is coming. Now, that doesn't really resonate with us. If, if we hear the president is coming, it's somewhat like the circus is coming. Not that, right? But we, so, pick your president. But it's, a, it's an attraction. It's something that you'd like to go see. Maybe you'd like to be part of that crowd and get close to that great man. That is not what it would have sounded like to hear the king is coming. Because, you see, the king is the law. The king is Lord. The king is sovereign. And maybe he's got um, you know, a particular concern about how he likes things. And, and your town best be ready. Because the king is coming. And that's the, that's the sense of this message. This is not Jesus saying there's a, an attraction coming to town. The, the sense is the Lord, the kingdom of God is near. So there is accountability being presented, you see. That our task then as the church, as evangelists, is, is not simply to get people to believe in Jesus. If you think that's your task, you'll be frustrated when you meet pagans who say, oh, I do believe in Jesus. Well, okay, well, where do you go with that? The task here is to announce the presence of the kingdom of God, to announce that God has come near, that, that he has installed his king 
on the throne of heaven and that this Jesus is Lord of the earth and he's coming again and there will be an accounting. That's, that's the message. Ultimate authority is drawing near. There was a um, post by Tim Challies. I'm going to pick it up here quick. Where he just talks about this, the law aspect of the, of the, of the gospel message. And he's talking about how the, um, why are people so offended by the gospel? And he points out that the gospel, you see, is the one message that counters everything we want to believe about ourselves and about God. Now, he uses the word gospel here. I would use the word law, but he's, he's talking about the, the message generally. He says, we want to believe that we are autonomous, but the gospel assures us we're under the jurisdiction of God. We want to believe that we are good at heart, but the gospel says we are far worse than we could possibly imagine. We want to believe we are wise, but the gospel says we are foolish. We want to define ourselves by our desires and preferences, but the gospel says that God has already defined us in the act of creating us. We want to believe that we can do whatever we want today without fear of eternal consequences, but the gospel unapologetically declares that there will be the most fearsome and eternal consequences for our sin. That's the message that they're sent to proclaim. The kingdom of God is at hand. God has come, and there, there will be an accounting. And so Jesus sends them to speak of the reality of God, the presence of God's king, and of course, then also to pro the, the gospel is a part of that message. In chapter 9, they, they, they went and they proclaimed the kingdom of God, and, and in another place it says they, they proclaimed the gospel. And so they would share that God has sent a redeemer, a, a, a messiah, and though they don't fully understand all the implications of that, they know it means salvation. They know it means help for the downcast and for those who are in sin. Jesus commands that they accompany that proclamation with promotion, a ministry of deeds. Why? Why heal the sick? Why, in chapter 9, cast out demons? Well, there are, I think, various reasons that we could give. Let me just quickly give you two. One would be it's to manifest the compassion of the king. So they say God is coming. And he is the authority. He is the Lord. And there will be an accounting. But the beautiful thing is that this king is a compassionate king. And when you read about Jesus' ministry, how often don't you read? His heart was moved with compassion. He was filled with compassion. He took compassion, had compassion. You, you see, when you see Jesus at work in this world that he's created and has, and has rebelled against him and he's the king, you, you, you don't see Jesus carrying a big stick. You do see Jesus caring for people. He truly, deeply cared for people. He loved people. And so as Jesus sends these 72 in his name and on his mission, he sends them both to proclaim and to promote the gospel with kindness, with compassion, with mercy. You see, if, if you ask the question, why, why the miracles, why the healing miracles, why the casting out of demons, I think it's easy for us to assume it's because Jesus didn't like those things and he wanted to get rid of them. Well, there, there has to be more going on than that because if Jesus just wanted to get rid of diseases and get rid of demons, he didn't have to, he could with a word, right, cast every demon out of Israel and cured every disease in Israel. With a word. Done. Be gone. But he doesn't do that. Why doesn't he do that? Because 
he's trying to get at a deeper issue than the sickness, than, than even the demon possession. There's a, there's a deeper issue. The miracles are signs. They're proofs. They're testimonies. They point to something, to the nature of the kingdom of God and the power of the kingdom of God. They are evidence, you see, that the kingdom is at hand, and they are in themselves a command to respond to this king in faith and obedience. We're going to notice... And the next time we come back to this text, nevertheless, see verse 11, this is exactly what it's about. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. And then Jesus goes on to talk about Chorazin and Bethsaida. If the mighty works had been done in you, if they'd have been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in dust and ashes a long time ago. They would have recognized the signs and they would have repented. But you had the signs right in front of you. You had the testimony of the power of God and the presence of God and the nature of this kingdom right in front of you. The truth of this king was presented and you refused to believe. It will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment. You see, the signs are witnesses, they're testimonies. Both, you see, then to expose the unbelief of those who are the enemies of God, but also to, to, to draw those who are the elect children of God. So they, they, there's a wonderful promoting witness here. When people see the compassion of Christ, now how does that happen in our day? Why don't we have healing services? Why don't we do exorcisms? Well, there are many who claim that that's exactly what we ought to do. If we had more faith, that's what we would be doing. We should engage in power encounters was a, a, a book that John Wimber wrote um, oh, back 20 years ago maybe. But um, while there's evidence in Scripture, what, 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 let me say this. While we believe that God does do miracles today, and I firmly believe that demons are cast out still today, it's... The overwhelming evidence of the New Testament is, is that the gospel transformed lives of God's people and the gospel empowered acts of love and mercy are the signs and miracles that God intends to use today. If you look at your New Testament, you look at all the letters written by the apostles, James, uh, James and, and Peter and Paul and John, you never see them commanding the churches to start a healing ministry or an exorcism ministry. They don't give instructions on how to do those things. What do they instruct? What do they command? Well, they say things like this. 1 Peter 2, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And, and that's the theme Live your life out loud in the world, in but not of. Be, be shining lights in the world. That's, those are the signs and miracles. Now, where did they get that? They got it from Jesus' own mouth, Matthew 5, 16. Let your light so shine before men that they see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And we just got to be clear about that because I think we sometimes assume that by good deeds, Jesus is talking about our moral living. So churches have interpreted this, don't let an unbeliever see you uh, smoking a cigarette, drinking a beer. Um, when I was growing up, it's like uh, we read that, and I, I also say I read that, and um, well, the neighbors aren't going to catch us mowing our lawn on Sunday, right? We're not going to mow our lawn, and we hope that uh, by not mowing our lawn on Sunday, our neighbors see our good deeds and glorify God in heaven. And we just think that through. There's nothing about you not mowing your lawn that really is going to 
say a whole lot about the gospel or about Jesus or, or any of that. So, so what are the good deeds? It's not just your moral living. It's not just the fact that you don't tell dirty jokes at work. You better not be telling dirty jokes at work. But that is not what Jesus is talking about when he talks about let your light so shine. The, the good deeds means acts of love and compassion and mercy. They're other people directed. See, focus on how do I, how do I engage people around me? How do I reach out and, and meet the needs and, and care for the concerns of other people around me? So how do I, how do I function as a, as a peacemaker? How do I love my enemies, give to the needy? That's what, those are the good deeds. If you think about Rosaria Butterfield, her great um, book, she's come out with a new one now as well that I'm going to get. But she was converted out of a very pagan lifestyle by the most simple things. It was just a pastor who wrote a kind letter disagreeing with her, but it was kind, it was respectful. And then he invited her over to his home, and there she noticed that he was a gracious host to her, and, and he treated his wife with love and respect and engaged her in, in a respectful conversation just living, the God, living out of the gospel in love and kindness and mercy and grace to other people and that want a hearing for the gospel. That's how it's supposed to work. So this is very encouraging to me. When we think evangelism, our, our minds maybe goes to street preaching. Well, what about if, if God has called you? He maybe has called you to street preaching, but maybe he's just called you to be nice to your neighbor. And to think about how to really care for the person that you work with, the one that, that is clearly not saved. Who is this person? Who is, what, are their, what are their needs? What, where's the hurts? How can you pray for them? How can you befriend them? Maybe, maybe it's, it looked just like opening up your home or your small group Bible study, and you just invite people who aren't Christians into your life. Don't you think? And doesn't that sound a lot more doable? Well, Jesus commands the church, to do both proclamation and promotion. It's, it's why, you see, it matters that we're kind to, and genuinely concerned when we meet a visitor here at church. Because to fail to do that is undercutting everything that's happening up here. But when you, when you live out the truths that you're hearing in genuine kindness for each other and for the stranger, the, the new person, you see, then it all fits together. Then it's a believable message. That's how Jesus sends us. Let's move on to the mission need. Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly. And I, I need to move along here a little bit. The, um, it's a classic verse, of course. I want you to notice just a couple things that we really need to see. First, note the abundance of the harvest. The harvest is plentiful means that God has many, many people, thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions of people who need to be brought in. The harvest is plentiful. In keeping with his promise to Abraham, God has a, a harvest as plentiful as the sand on the seashore, as bountiful as the stars in the heavens. He promises that that's the case. And we need to hear that because I think we tend to assume that there are few to be saved in a city like Grand Rapids. The harvest is not really plentiful in our town. But Jesus repudiates our unbelief and our small vision and promises that the harvest is abundant. And, and the abundance of the harvest, you see, needs to then, um, the ramifications of that 
is that we should engage in that work with urgency and great enthusiasm. I just, I just remember growing up on the farm, if it, was, if it was a tough year, so we didn't get much rain or maybe too much rain, whatever it was, but the crops were just not, there just wasn't much there. It was just not a good year. I remember going, you have to do the harvest. You got to get what you can get, but there's not a lot of joy in it, not a lot of urgency to it. But if you had a good year, you had, you had good rain at the right time, if the hay was thick, the windrows were, were wide and tall, the corn stood above the tractor, you couldn't wait to get at harvesting. It was an absolute joy, and, and you worked with great enthusiasm because it was, it was just fantastic to be reaping this great harvest. You have that, if, you've got a good, if you're into gardening, and you've got a, just a wonderful crop of whatever it is. Isn't it fun to go out there and gather in the harvest? Well, it's, it's, it's exactly that sort of enthusiasm that Jesus wishes to press upon his disciples and upon the church today. There's a harvest out there, and it's not meager. It's not meager. There are men and women and boys and girls right in our community who need to hear about Jesus because God is determined to save them and give them everlasting life. That's the enthusiasm we need as we go about Vacation Bible School. We're not just putting on a program. There's an opportunity to proclaim and promote Jesus to people who need to hear, people who don't have a church home, people who very, very well might be the harvest of God. See, I, and again, I, I think I'm, I share my own sinful unbelief here, but I think we often look at the harvest field negatively, assuming that people won't really be interested in the things of God. We hesitate to talk about spiritual things because we assume people will be offended. We don't invite them to church because we assume they won't want to come. And the question is, why do we assume that? Who told us that? Jesus seems to suggest that we ought to approach the harvest field with optimism, with with the belief that the harvest is plentiful, that God has many people who need to be brought in. Maybe, you see, the greatest obstacle to our engaging the world in, with evangelism is not the hardness of our neighbor's hearts, but the unbelief of our hearts. I think this one thought could radically change the way we think about the whole business. If we would believe that, they, that God has put people in our sphere of influence who are willing to talk about the things of the Lord and who are willing to consider the claims of Christ, who would love to be invited to church. They'd love to be invited to your small group Bible study. They'd love just to be invited to come maybe spend some time with, with you and your family. They're, God has placed those people there. The harvest is plentiful. You see, the problem is the scarcity of harvesters. That's what Jesus points to. The laborers are few. Now, Jesus, Jesus looked around. He saw a harvest field all over the place, and yet he saw so few people actually engaging in it. People had other things on their, on their mind and heart. The, the kingdom of God wasn't the great concern for the people of God. They were busy, busy with their lives, buying oxen and fields and getting married and taking care of family members, all good things. But there was a harvest there. Sound familiar? Don't you think Jesus would look around and see how busy we are and all the things that we love to do? And, and, and praise the Lord, he, he blesses us with so many good things to do. But there's a harvest. There's a harvest. 
What are we, what are we going to do about the harvest? And how, how do we get excited about the harvest? And, and Jesus answers that by saying, pray. Pray. We tend to think we ought to recruit. We ought to have another Sunday school class on the topic. We ought to maybe do a training program. But you see, those things aren't what Jesus points to because the problem is a heart problem. And we can't fix heart problems with Sunday school classes. It's a heart problem both for the person that needs to be converted. He needs a new heart. We can't do that. And, and, and it's a heart problem for the converted person who needs to become aligned with the cause of Christ in, in, in that unique way. Someone who needs to be a converted person who needs to become a laborer in the field. So what is needed for both, you see, is a new vision of what really matters and a new heart that cares deeply for the things of God and the conviction that we, we, we have to do this and yet we can't do it without his help. So like John Dixon in the book I referenced before said, the most basic gospel-promoting task is not evangelism. It's prayer. It's prayer to the Lord of the harvest. The vital link between the masses who need to hear the gospel and the workers who are sent to preach the gospel is the whole company of disciples praying for the work of the gospel. Evangelism is grounded in earnest prayer. Another writer says, a creeping death sweeps over the mission of many churches in our time because quite simply, prayer meetings have ceased. And beneath the death of prayer is the death of a real belief that people are lost and going to hell without Christ and only Jesus can actually save them. Prayer. Prayer. I'd like to make our monthly prayer meetings a a real item of concern for us and something that we gladly engage in. I'd like to make our monthly prayer meetings intentionally evangelistic, that we're begging. Jesus says pray earnestly. The word, the word is, means to beg God for help. Beg God for a new heart. Lord, don't leave us on the, on the sidelines when there's a harvest to be gained, when there are people who need to be, be found, uh, when, when the gospel needs to be proclaimed don't, don't leave us in our busy lives where we, we just miss being effective and fruitful and faithful in this. Give us those joyful, enthusiastic hearts, those willing hearts, hearts that expect to see people brought to Christ as we promote and proclaim the gospel in practical and powerful ways. I invite you to join us the last Wednesday of every month to do this work that Jesus calls us to and to think about the busyness that maybe would keep you away. And then finally, very shortly, the mission context. <laughs> this, is a, this, is a, this is a douse of cold water. Notice what he says. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Wow, I thought this was going to be easy. I mean, we were all fired up, ready to go. The, mission, the, the harvest is, is, bound, is plentiful, bountiful. Go, pray. It's great. And Jesus says, by the way, I'm sending you as lambs in the midst of wolves. Um, do, do you know what wolves do to lambs? They devour them. They devastate them. They destroy them. They rip them to pieces just for the fun of it. And every person hearing these words of Christ would know that. And Jesus doesn't say, I'm sending you even though you are lambs. Sorry, you're sheep, but we got to go, you know. No, no, he says, as lambs. It's the point. I'm sending you as lambs in the midst of wolves. They're to live in the world of wolves as lambs, as utterly dependent people. Notice that why Jesus says, don't take along all your provisions, all your supplies. You're going to go in utter dependence upon God. 
Your banner is going to be weakness, helplessness, defenselessness. That's how I'm sending you. Now, why would Jesus do that? Because that's where all the power is. The church has tried to have an impact upon the world for the gospel through the world's means, through political power, uh, through just strength as the world understands strength. It never, ever works. Backfires horribly. But every time the church has embraced its helplessness, has embraced its weakness, and has gone into the world leaning completely upon God, God has been pleased to do amazing things every time. You see, suffering is part of the power. When we embrace our weakness and we are willing to face whatever suffering God would would grant, in the mission, there's amazing testimony to that. Here are people who act as though this world isn't their home. These are people who act as if this life is not their ultimate goal. These are people who have joy even when they lose their possessions and when they lose their lives. Who are these people? What do they know? Well, they know Jesus. It's a powerful testimony, and the history of the church proves it over and over again, that when we go into a world of wolves as lambs, embracing our defenselessness, whatever you say that, our weakness, when we just acknowledge that's true, I don't have the answers, I don't, but Jesus does. And you can, right, you can hate, you can mock, you can scorn, you can oppose. I understand that. You don't know him yet. The question, finally, why would we do that? Why would we be willing to lose things and be willing to suffer, be willing to be scorned and mocked? Well, it's because we understand what's going on. We understand that the world's blind. They don't see. And we, we right, if we have the heart of Christ, we love people. And we want them to see, and we're willing to suffer the scorn so that they might see. And we, and we do it because we understand that we used to be that person. We were the scorner. We were the mocker. It was our sin, remember, that held him there. And yet Jesus was willing to die in the face of our scorn and our mocking, our contempt for us. We're the product of a love that's willing to enter into our, our mess, our sin, and suffer and die in our place. We, we, we receive that, and, and we receive it still, and so that love is more and more defining us, and that's the love that sends us. Jesus loved us just like that, and he loves us still, and we have the privilege of loving other people then just like that. Friends, this morning we come to the table of our Lord Jesus Christ, a table where we remember whose we are, and we remember the price that was paid, and we remember the calling that's been given to us. Go, go. There's a harvest field. May God give us the joy of reaping it. Amen. Well, Father in heaven, thank you so much for Jesus. I thank you, Lord, that he, he delights to lead us. He loves to involve us in his gospel mission. Father, you know our our sin in this area, our weakness, our fear, our unbelief, our busyness. Oh, Lord, we want to change. We want to be a church that enthusiastically engages in the harvest field, in our homes, in our relationships, where we work, where we shop, where we live. 
And here as we gather together on Sundays that we're excited to see what you are doing as we offer ourselves to this task, this, this glorious mission. So Father, lead us, direct us, encourage us, and use us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.